intro music is ill-suited for this episode. Can we play something else? That's better. Okay, welcome to Odd Lots. It's Tuesday, January 19th. I'm Tracy Alloway, Executive Editor at Bloomberg Markets. And I'm Joe Weisenthal, Managing Editor of Bloomberg Markets. So the world lost a musical great last week. I am talking, of course, about David Bowie, who died of cancer at the age of 69. This makes us all very, very sad. But instead of being sad on this episode, we are going to use it to celebrate Bowie's creative genius. So are you just going to play Bowie music for the next half an hour? Uh, As much as you might like that, (laughs) no. We are actually going to talk about his financial genius. And what I mean by that is, of course, we are going to talk about Bowie bonds. Yeah, Bowie bonds. So I've heard them a lot, but what are they exactly? So they're a type of bond, uh, to be specific, a securitization that bundles up future cash flows from the royalties from music rights. And David Bowie was the first to do them. So a pioneer in ways beyond just music and style. Oh, most definitely. So joining us today from Los Angeles to tell the story of Bowie Bonds is David Pullman. He's the banker who helped create these in the late 1990s. And in fact, Bowie Bonds are sometimes known as Pullman Bonds. Um, I'm uh, somehow not surprised that the media prefers to call them Bowie Bonds. <laughs> um, I'm really excited about that. I think it should be a great conversation. One uh, quick note, we're not just going to talk about Bowie Bonds. Later in the episode, we're going to be talking about the aptly named Beige Book, seen as one of the most boring economic releases in the world. <laughs> but it actually has a fascinating back history. And just like we'll be talking to the father of Bowie Bonds, we'll also be talking to the father of the Beige Book. Right. Bowie Bonds and the Beige Book. Let's start. Let's do it. David Pullman, welcome to the show. Let's maybe start at the beginning. Can you tell us how you met Bowie and how these bonds kind of came about? Sure. Initially, Bowie had a very large catalog of songs that he had uh, fought to with his manager at the time, to revert. Revert means he was going to sell them? or uh, No. What happened was David, as a teenager, and his manager realized the importance of his work, so he negotiated very hard with the record companies to make sure they got recapture and or reversion of their record masters that he created on his original songs that he started in the 60s and then continuing that going forward, which is extremely rare for artists to own their record masters. And he negotiated so hard that the, for these, and he had the confidence in himself, in terms of because most artists that they'll fail, they give up their rights to the record masters, which is not at all atypical. Probably 99.99% of all artists don't have the record masters. Huh. And he owned his publishing and his writer's share, and they said, well, you know, probably in the back of their minds, like, you know, this kid, he's a teenager, you know, he'll be nothing in five years or whenever it would be going forward. So big deal if he get back his record masters. And, you know, obviously it was a, David Bowie and his manager at the time were betting that that would not happen, hmm. that he had confidence in himself that he would, that he's going to be successful. And he took less upfront to be able to, to get that, which was, you know, a big statement about as a teenager to show how savvy and, uh, sophisticated he was. I mean, not many teenagers get another word for capture or version. So in the 1990s, he still has these master rights to his music, right? And he's trying to decide what to do with them. Correct. So we, yeah, we, we fast forward to that. 
and he's deciding what to do with them. And at the time, everyone was coming back to him, and it was also an opportunity for David to get not only back his record masters, but he also had a, a publishing administration deal for his publishing and his writer's share. Every, all the rights were coming back to him that he would have 100% control over. Okay, so how did you meet him and come up with this idea? What happened was, at that point, when he had all these rights coming back, and there was also some, there were some tax advantages and estate planning advantages, David and his business manager were looking to sell his catalog. And that came up because I was doing transactions with his business manager in other areas of investment banking. And as it turned out, he mentioned to me in passing, so... I thought, okay, well, it's not something we're looking at doing a sale of catalogs, that's, but that's nice, you're working on it. Then he realized that David wasn't going to sell because these were his babies. So this turned out to be a, a smart move. So instead of selling the entire catalog, what he did was, base, and what you did, was basically a securitization of the future cash flows from the rights to that catalog. Correct. What, what happened was, when I asked some questions, how much has it earned? To, mm-hmm. This is the David's business manager. And at the time, he told me what it earned, and he earned as much what it was earning as much as a large corporation. Hmm. So the next question was, did he have three years of financials? They said they had five. I said, were they audited? He said, yes. I said, are they by big six at the time, which would be big four accounting firms at the time? He said, yes. Hmm. To which I said, I could securitize that, to which his business manager said, what securitization? <laughs> and I want to just correct that only because so they got it right, the quotes, but in terms of uh, D- David then got the information in terms of this deal, and he decided within a split second and said, why haven't we started yet? Hmm. So he basically, even though this concept of securitization may be unusual, as soon as it was explained to him that he could sell the cash flows of the songs rather than the songs himself, he instantly understood the appeal of it. Yeah, and what's amazing is he got the concept faster than... You know, other investment bankers, investors, other people in the financial markets. He grasped new ideas and concepts and was willing to take a chance and wasn't afraid to fail. And that's why he was so successful in terms of trying new things. So we went ahead with it. We did the deal in rocket speed. Now, what's interesting, when, when, when David's hearing this for the first time and making his decision to go forward within less than a second, not a second, less than a huh. second, there's no, there's not a written word in the history of the world prior to that meeting on anyone even thinking about doing this, much less than doing it. What was it like actually going out and selling these bonds? Because they're brand new things. Lots of people haven't heard about them before. How did you do the sales pitch and who did you end up selling them to? Okay. Well, first of all, during those, it takes about a couple months, usually new deals, even today, they take a year to market. They were investment grade. They were at the single A level rated by multiple rating agencies and national recognized rating agencies as well. And they were 20-year legal finals, 15-year expected maturity, and they priced off the U.S. 10-year treasury, the average life of the bonds. And what we did, they were done as a true private placement, so that the, in terms of the deals are confidential or proprietary, so others couldn't see what the deal was other than the actual rating agencies and the investors in the bonds. So they went to go to a life insurance company because they typically buy long-term Right. Investment grade bonds, and that was a perfect fit for them. They never missed a payment. They never triggered. They never they they paid off in full. And what was interesting is that the first co- they actually just ran the actual cover, which was interesting to me in the article uh, uh, about David Bowie, the cover story that broke uh, when David had done this deal with me. 
and it got out, which was at the end of 96, and it closed in the beginning of 1997. So at the very end of the year. So the story breaks, and they quote these large investors that are in municipal bonds and other asset classes, and they say, are you kidding me? Are you crazy? And that was that, the, the written reaction when this, the first article that comes out. Now, what happens when that article runs, and it was on the cover that morning of the Wall Street Journal, and we'd already placed it, had the rate of the bonds, no one knew that, and they were already placed, they were already sold. Mm-hmm. The phone is ringing off the hook to buy the bonds from the biggest investors in the world at institutions that buy asset tax and want an uncorrelated asset, a new asset class that's uncorrelated to the stock market. And risk is diversified. So it was, the reaction was, with the, at that moment, I knew that we had you know, really hit something in terms of the, the reaction was so positive how, on the market. They weren't calling to find out about it. They were calling to buy them. How big was the offering? It was $55 million, and it was rated at the single-A level. I want to go back uh, real quickly to the first, when you first brought the Bowie Bonds to the ratings agencies, because yes. here you were, you had created this new type of product. What kind of questions did they ask, excellent since obviously question. they had That's never rev- rated one of these before? Yeah, excellent question. Well, we're sitting there with one of the major agencies, and I know who it was exactly. And we're sitting there, and, uh, you know, it's, it's sad now in terms of everyone's mourning the death of David Bowie, and now, at, this is almost 20 years ago, we're at this first meeting in, 90, in 1996, right, approximately, almost almost exactly that period, mm-hmm. a few months short of it. So, and the legal final maturity of the deal. So they say, a question comes up, says, what happens if David dies? So as he asked the question, and the, the person in the range, he was, was very astute, I mean, that we worked with on that and other deals. He, he thought about it and answered his own question as we asked. So if he were business manager at the meeting with us, et cetera, and others on the deal, you know, we were all responded, well, you know, it, it's actually, it's a good thing, my response was, because there's no new product, right? Now, we won't, and then I, then I followed, and they got, he got it, understanding that its catalog would soar as it is now in terms of value and the interest. Right. And then I followed with, but we won't tell David that, right, because David's a very young <laughs> man, right? <laughs> so the, the idea that in terms of they thought about that, in terms of they understood that the royalties would continue and actually increase, if something were to happen, they were not. The, the question was really that, that a lot of people do ask in, at the time and even after was to understand the concept that it's not tied to the artist. These songs have a life of their own, and separately, that estates and heirs and successors and assigns continue to get the royalties, whether the author of the songs, the artist, the songwriter, or any other intellectual property or creative asset, entry asset, is, is living or not. I have so, a question uh, in terms of the structure of the Bowie bond. They paid a regular coupon. It, would they? Did the price that they got or that the payment the investors got, did they fluctuate and go up? Like, you know, say in the event that David had died during the period of the bond and people started buying more and more of his CDs, would the end investor have received a higher coupon those months? Good question. And, you know, I've given a number of interviews on this, and I want to, you know, respect to David, I respond to everyone because I want to make sure that, you know, his, his legacy is preserved. And in the transaction, what was, I was uncomfortable with a couple of things that your listeners and viewers really get is the deal always maintains its investment grade rating. The deal, deal paid off early as well. So the bondholders that bought mm. the bonds at the time at a 7.9% interest, which was a higher interest rate than U.S. Treasuries, which is normal. There was a, the, the spread over U.S. Treasuries at the time was 
in, in the mid-100 basis point range over U.S. Treasuries. So the yield was that obviously the interest rates were much higher in that, in that, mm-hmm. that period of time in the 90s. So we're looking at a spread in the mid-100s over the U.S. Treasury, and the 10-year Treasury was used to price it. So your question is, as more cash flow came in to, from the royalties, the bonds were paying down faster, which was better for the investors. But se- separately, now you have more collateral and assets that were, it's worth more over time because it's like a, our deals were self-liquidating. So the balance is getting lower and lower. Mm-hmm. The cash reserve we have in the deals is getting higher and higher as a portion of the outstanding balance. And the cash flow is increasing from the royalties as they are now, as an example, as David said, that the royalties will be soaring. So the bondholders now have more collateral and have securities that actually should have a higher rating. We were capped by the rating of the payer sources in a deal, including companies like EMI at the time, that publishing catalog has since sold, uh, to a, a joint venture with Sony. But the example is that we're limited, just like in a transaction with a country, a sovereign debt ceiling, you're limited by the, the, the a major payer in your deal of their rating. So that's why we're limited to the investment rating, rating that we had. But they, every single deal, including the first deal for David Bowie, the Bowie Bond, every Pullman Bond subsequently maintained their investment grade ratings, never missed a payment, and paid off in full. All right, David, uh, one last question before we let you go. Uh, what was it like working with David Bowie, and do you have maybe a, a fun anecdote from the times when you were putting these things together? And I just want to also combine with that question, what did David Bowie think about the fact that this musician, he was an artist, avant-garde, was he, was he surprised that he became also famous for, in part, becoming a financial market innovator? I mean, I'm, you know, actually um, amazed and it makes sense that if you look at the news overall, I mean, this is a huge component of how David is remembered. I mean, it's, it's in terms of around the world, in terms of the press, what was interesting about him, which really stuck out for me, was he was the perfect person to have for the first deal ever of its kind. Not only just because he was known as an innovator, but how... He handled himself. He was, uh, the word is, you know, genius is used in terms of, there's no question he's a genius in terms of his musical abilities, an artist. He's someone that's going to remember this. If you walk into museums and you see works that are priceless, that's what David Bowie has created. But the difference is, David Bowie's priceless works have cash flow royalties that come from them. So that's unique. So what is special about him was he never, ever questioned me in terms of whether the deal was going to happen or not, how long it was taking. He was the most supportive person to work with, and he wasn't afraid to fail, which was the key to the mm. success. So I'm doing this deal for the very first time. No one's ever done it in the world before, and he's not worried. I'm thinking, you know, is this going to be able to happen, right? And we're doing it, and he's not nervous at all. On top of that, the deal happens. There's a cavalcade of press. It's over 5,000 articles in the press, radio, TV, magazines, and Dave, which was, you know, I didn't realize that. When, going into this deal, my favorite song by him, not knowing at the time that it was his number one, first number one, was Fame. So Dave understood that, and he gave that to me, right? He, under, huh. he wouldn't do any interviews, which created a bigger mystique and legend for David on this deal. So I just done this deal. David's famous. Most artists would want all the attention for themselves, 
Right. David, it gives me, in terms of any reporter that calls, anyone who wants to talk about the deal, any artist, other famous artists at the time that are friends of his, ask him, talk to David Pullman. Every <laughs> single one. He wouldn't talk to anyone about it. That's a good reference. And then the, my favorite part was you go to the conferences on you know, asset tax securities, like the, the biggest investors in the world, on whether it be the rating agencies, the institutional investors, uh, attorneys that work on the transactions, trustees, whoever's there at these conferences. And the thing that was statistical that you could actually securitize with the questions, the very first question at every single conference I spoke at, with a keynote, various ones, and there were dozens of them over the, over the period, was, did you meet David? Every <laughs> single conference was the same question. All right, uh, David Pullman, thank you so much of for course. joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. All right, now we're going to turn to something that most people probably think is far less interesting than David Bowie, but I think you should stay with us because there's a story here that's really fascinating. We're going to talk about the Beige Book, what it is, how it came into being, and where it's going. So the Beige Book is this thing that the Fed releases every month where it's basically anecdotal color about the state of the economy from all the Fed districts. So they produce this big document that has things like wage pressure is rising in Kansas and Broadway theaters in New York are weakening due to the fact that the dollar is strong and keeping tourists away and shipping is doing really well <laughs> in the port of Miami and stuff like this. And it's sort of a very non numerical way of looking at the economy. I generally find it quite interesting, but I guess a lot of people think of it as very, very boring. It is. I mean, people say, well, it's perfectly named the Beige Book. <laughs> and it's funny, the reason I got interested in this is back in December, I was thinking that a really good novelty sort of holiday gift or Christmas gift for a banker would be an old physical copy of the Beige Book, <laughs> because now, of course, everyone just looks at it electronically. Right. I was reading about the history of the Beige Book, and I discovered something fascinating hmm. on the Wikipedia page, which is that the Beige Book didn't always used to be released to the public. Ah. And it wasn't until the mid-80s when a Wall Street Journal reporter named Paul Cox asked the Federal Reserve to make the Beige Book public. Oh, imagine a life without the Beige Book. And what's even cooler <laughs> is that... Paul Cox now works for Bloomberg and sits about two rows away from us in the newsroom. And so I so thought... So we have to bring him in. And I was like, oh my God, we work two rows away from a celebrity, the father of the Beige Book, the man without whom this report would never have seen the light of day. <laughs> and now I want to get the story. Look, there aren't too many people walking among us that can say, if it weren't for me, this economic data point would be released. <laughs> That's something to be proud of. All right. So we have Paul Cox here with us today. We also have Bloomberg economics reporter Matt Bosler, who's going to be talking a little bit about how people use the Beige Book today, some 25 years later. All right. Let's get started. So we're here with uh, Bloomberg News is Paul Cox. Hello. How are you doing? And we're also here with uh, Bloomberg economic reporter Matthew Bosler. Hey, guys. Thank you both so much for joining us. So, Paul, you are the father of the Beige Book. Explain to us how you got into this position. What were you doing at the time? <laughs> it's always fun to go back and uh, relive your wins, and this, <laughs> this, was, this was a good win. Um, I was a reporter for Dow Jones News Service in, based in Washington, was part of their economic policy team. Um, 
there in Washington, I was based at the Treasury Department, and you cover the economic indicators, you cover Treasury bond issuance, and that sort of thing, but also Federal Reserve and monetary policy. At some point, one of my editors decided we should write uh, previews for federal open market committee meetings, or curtain raisers, as they call them in the business. So already this is kind of weird, because we think of a preview for an FOMC decision as just standard. Everyone always writes a preview, but mm. that wasn't always the case, that this was something that got hyped up? Well, they were previews like you did, but just like now that I'm an editor in Bloomberg and I lean on my reporters to break news, um, my editors then leaned on me to break <laughs> news, and I was under pressure to get more than that, get scoops, if you will. And that's how this came about. So in gathering for one of those curtain raisers, I was talking to a Fed official on background, of course, and we were sort of bantering back and forth, and he was doing his best to not tell me anything. And I sort of jokingly said, well, well can, can you give me the blue book, which is the internal staff uh, monetary policy recommendations? And he said, no. And I said, okay, how about the green book? And the green book is the internal economic forecast. And he said, no. And I said, how about the beige book? And he goes, there was a pause. And he said, let me think about that. And we continued our conversation and hung up. A couple of days later, he called me back and he said, we've decided to give you the beige book. Now, you know, the Beige Book is the summary of economic conditions in the 12 Federal Reserve Banks. It's not everything, but it's something. That day, a courier showed up at the Treasury Department and dropped off an envelope with my name on it. And I opened it up, and there it was, the Beige Book. So what had they actually been using that book for before it was kind of public? Well, I believe for as long as the Federal Reserve has been in business in FOMC meetings that they always, they have 12 regional banks that are full of smart economists who interface with the local banks, the business communities, and have this wealth of knowledge. And I understand that in the past, they would um, give their information to their president, he would come to the FOMC meeting, and they would, in essence, read it out. Um, Arthur Burns, I, I believe from history, decided that that was kind of a waste of time. And so he asked, could you summarize that and put it in a document and send it in and we'll, we'll compile this into a book and distribute it before the meeting so everybody can digest it. It was a speed process and thus was born the Beige Book. But it was, it was one of those private documents until that day. And I just want to make something clear. This was literally a book with a beige cover. So when you talked about the Blue Book and the Green Book, these were books, documents that were handed out in terms and they had the they were of different colors. Well, I never got my hands on the blue book or the green book. I'm only told that that's what color they are. But the beige book was in fact beige. It was about 20 pages long, and mostly prose, not a lot of numbers. But it was good information, and I wrote a pretty good story off it. And you know, of course, my competitors were furious. Um, I took great fun as a, a good reporter for the Associated Press named Marty Krutzinger. Hey, Marty! Um, <laughs> that the, uh, when I would scoop him, he would come over because we sat you know 20 feet apart. He would come over and kick my chair a few times, and I got a chair kick out of that one. So. So what did your first story actually say about the Beige Book? Well, I, I believe at the time that um, that was when you know Paul Volcker had run interest rates up to very high, and they were in the process of wringing inflation out of the economy, but hoping not to do you know too much too much damage to it. And I believe at the time it showed sort of slightly better economic conditions, which led them to believe that they can continue on this path of, of you know keeping interest rates high and trying to get inflation back to where it was supposed to be. So now every month when the Beige Book comes out, it's something people know that the Beige Book comes out, news organizations like Bloomberg get ready to read the headlines very quickly. At what point did this go from something that a few reporters got to 
oh, today is Beige Book Day. Let's pay attention. Well, that was a surprise to me because I was on that beat. I went on to some other things. I eventually left Washington and, and did other things. And it was just at that time of the policy was if you wanted and asked for it, they would give it to you. But it, was, it wasn't an economic indicator, as you will. It was sometime many years later, I either saw the listing of this week's economic indicators in the Wall Street Journal <laughs> or heard somebody on radio or TV saying, and this week is coming out. And I was like, huh? When did that become an economic indicator? But it did. So I want to bring in uh, Matt Bosler into the conversation. Matt, you cover the economy. You cover the Fed. One of the things that you always look at is the beige book. So as an economic indicator, what do you look at? How do you digest it? Well, it's interesting because it's not hard economic data, right? And it gets sort of... It's, an, it's lots of anecdotes. Yeah, it's a, it's a book of anecdotes, right? So it's interesting. It sort of colors all of the numbers that you work with every day and look at, you know, and it kind of gives you a regional perspective on what's happening in the economy, you know, not just, um, you know, total aggregate consumption or whatever, but here's what's happening in the Boston district or here's what's happening in the um, Philadelphia district or whatever. Um, and now it seems like the the biggest thing that people do with it is they try to do like linguistic or textual analyses, you know, sort of, if you remember a few years ago when we had those really bad winters, we would count the number of times the word weather appeared in the beige book. And that was like the big thing that everybody wanted to see. There wasn't much more to it than that. And, um, I was just putting together, um, just before this recording, I was looking at um, the, the number of times that the word dollar uh, has showed up in the beige book recently. And so if you go back to summer of 2014, there were literally no mentions of the word dollar in the beige book. And now, as of the latest uh, beige book, there were 21 mentions of the word dollar. So it's really, you know, all over the thing now, talking about different regional, you know, manufacturing getting hurt by the strong dollar recently. So so now we even have indexes or indices uh, based on the beige book, right? Trying to translate the beige book into actual numbers. Yeah, exactly. So that's like the same sort of textual analysis, but it's a little more sophisticated. There's one um, that Stone and McCarthy Research Associates puts together. And basically the way they do it is they look for words like expanding, contracting, uh, growing, slowing, and they sort of have different scores for each of those words. And then they average them, you know, they add them all up and average them together and they sort of come up with this beige book activity index they call it that if you look at it kind of does look like a lot of other economic data series which is pretty interesting that you know you would get that out of it paul what is it amusing to you that this document that you just got on physical paper that was couriered to you is now this thing that people are diving into with this deep textual analysis it, it, it does, but it's. I, I guess I put it in the category of the economy matters and the economy matters and the Fed matters. And it was just that, you know, you, you work hard at something and you think you're making a difference. Um, sometimes you get a lot of feedback, sometimes you don't. But it's, yes, bottom line is a, that it was one of, one of those successes. And I would like to think that if you, if you press hard on this craft and get information about the economy, it, it, it all works. Paul, you brought us a, a photograph, right? I did. What is this showing? 
Uh, that shows uh, the Treasury press room from that era, and it's a picture of Donald Reagan, who was the Treasury Secretary under Ronald Reagan, who would occasionally stop by and talk to us. It was um, it was a different era in terms of um, uh, security and and uh, access to people and things like that. But I decided I brought that along. I found it in my basement cleaning out some boxes. So Paul's in the back of this photo, rocking some very very '80s hair uh, with a mustache and sunglasses. They're they're just you know tinted glasses, but um, I've I've long <laughs> since gone to contact lenses. So what's the uh, what's the beige book showing these days? Well, uh, modest to moderate growth, subdued wage growth. Um, you know that's one of the things that's kind of funny is the only place you really see wage growth these days is in the beige book because it hasn't really come through in like the, the hard, hard data. data yet. Uh, but even in this latest beige book that we got last week, didn't really show much in the way of a lot of wage pressure. But it is interesting because, you know, sometimes that's like you get those anecdotes like, um, you know, this district, this particular um, sector in this district, you know, there was some signs of increasing wage pressures, but just not enough to like move the the needle in terms of like the whole economy. Paul, you're kind of you've, you're on a, in a different role. You're an editor. You're on a more markets focused beat. Do you still check out the Beige Book each month? When oh, it comes I, out? I, absolutely. Is that I'm on the team that covers Treasuries and foreign exchange, and what the Fed does is a is a huge factor on that. And just you know, we looked at it as it's sort of this combination thing where. Employment's pretty good. We're almost at full employment, depending on your definition. But as Matt was pointing out rightly, that you know the wage pressure hasn't come. There's no inflation, and that was one of the other things that the Fed wanted to see in justifying continued wage increases. So as we walk up to this January 26th, 27th FOMC meeting, it gives you a piece of information to try to discern what's the Fed going to do along with all the other market participants we're keeping close touch with. Plus, you're the father of the beige book. You have to, you know, check in on your baby, right? No doubt. Do you get, real quickly, do you get, do you think every time it comes out, do you think about that or have you... You've gotten used to it. I've gotten used to it. Is is that you know depending on what role is obviously in this role at Bloomberg, I'm a little closer to it than I was. I've done some other things. I um, was you know sort of more of an internet generalist and some other things. Um, I, I worked for some things called newspapers. You guys have heard of newspapers, right? Those also ago. used to be physical, right? Okay, yeah. Because I think that like if that. I had were the responsible for an economic data point. Even decades later, I would be pointing that out to people. But I didn't know about that until I saw. I went and looked at the Wikipedia entry for Beige Book, and I saw your name. Otherwise, I never would have known. I'll, I'll speak to my marketing department about that. <laughs> All right. Paul Cox of Bloomberg News, Matt Bosler, thank you guys so much for joining. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, well, that was Bowie Bonds and Beige Book. So I guess our theme for this episode was really alliteration. The letter B, yeah. Yeah. Well, I love both of those conversations, and I love, you know, I still, it is absolutely amazing, from just from the Bowie perspective, that he was this huge innovator, and it's not just in terms of music, or sort of musical securitizations, but all kinds of intellectual property securitizations, which became a key core of finance, he was an important player in. Well, so... As a finance journalist, I will say Bowie gave birth to a particular subset of bonds called esoteric ABS, which Mm. bundle together all sorts of things like restaurant franchises and the rights to comic strips like Peanuts. And they are genuinely uh, God's gift to structured finance journalists. So thank you, David Bowie. Because people must love any headline with that kind of stuff. 
Of course. And then on the beige book, I thought it was really interesting just to think back to a period of time when those, you know, all those anecdotes weren't public and no one was really clamoring for them. It was a totally different market. And just the idea of getting an economic release in physical paper, having to then scan through it. Mm. Now, people... I think when they think of any kind of economic data or a Fed statement, they just think of it as basically coming from coming out of magic out of their computer screens. But at one point, people actually had to go go get it and look at it and then type something up. And it wasn't nearly so automated. Of course, now there are all these quantitative approaches, which is funny. But in the not that long ago, really, it was a, uh, a much more physical thing to get this data. That's right. Okay, well, another episode of Odd Lots has passed us by. I am Tracy Alloway, executive editor of Bloomberg Markets. I'm on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal, managing editor of Bloomberg Markets. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Thank you for listening and see you next week. Joe and I are very proud of our new podcast, Odd Lots, but we are also very proud of Bloomberg's other growing suite of original podcasts, all designed to help you navigate the complexities of business, financial markets, and the global economy. So in addition to our own podcast, please don't miss Benchmark with Dan Moss, Tori Stilwell, and Aki Ito, an informative, jargon-free look at the inner workings of the global economy. Then there's Deal of the Week with our M&A reporter, Alex Sherman, which is a breakdown of the biggest M&A deals and gives you an inside peek at corporate boardrooms. All three shows are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Pocket Cast for Android, Bloomberg.com, and of course, the Bloomberg Terminal.